0: That's how my whole career, my whole running career went. It was always trying to beat the guy in front of me, always trying to catch the guy in front of me. And that helped me, not just with training. It wasn't just to train you, but it was that attitude going into races. And like I said, you know, when I started winning races, I didn't want to win them by one second. I wanted to win them by 90 seconds or two minutes. It was always about beating the opposition. Annihilation, I, I used to call it.
1: <laughs> That's Steve Jones, and this is episode 81 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week's episode is a really special one. I got to have a conversation with my favorite runner of all time, former marathon world record holder, Steve Jones. Jonesy, who's now 64 years old, broke the world record in the first marathon he ever finished at Chicago in 1984, running 208.05. He won the race again a year later in 207.13. In that race, he split an incredible 61.44 at halfway and just missed the world record by one second. What I've always loved and admired about Jonesy is his no-nonsense approach to training and racing. He describes it as running simplified, and it's a philosophy that's had a profound effect on me as both an athlete and coach over the years. The guy was probably the fiercest competitor of all time. He didn't chase records, he just wanted to run as hard as he possibly could to beat as many people as he possibly could. He once said, if I'm still standing at the end of the race, grab a board and knock me over because that means I didn't run hard enough. In short the guy was a total badass. I absolutely love this conversation, and I think you will too. We talked through his two Chicago victories and his New York win in 1988, and what made those triumphs so special. We got into his training philosophy, where it came from, and who influenced him over the years. We discussed how the sport has changed in the last few decades and where he sees it heading. We talked about why he continued to hold down a day job as a mechanic in the Royal Air Force after breaking the world record in 1984. We got into his current role as a coach, how his relationship with his athletes has evolved over the years, and why club running is important to the overall health of the sport. And that's not all. There's a lot to this conversation and even more to take away from it, so let's dive right in with Steve Jones. All right, this is a huge honor for me, Steve Jones. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, we're getting into the heart of fall marathon season right now. A lot of big ones are on the horizon. Berlin's around the corner. Chicago is less than a month from now. New York is in early November. I'd love to know what this time of year is like for you at this point of your life. Do you feel yourself getting a little more excited as these races come into focus? Uh,
0: Yeah, a little bit. It depends on really on whether I have anybody that's actually involved in the race. Races, Um, and I think. This year, I only have uh, Tyler in New York and uh, a couple of people running CIM at the end of the year. So, well, it's still a little bit exciting because the races I still go to. I still attend them as a, as a guest. Um, so it's always nice this time of year to, 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 to do a bit of traveling and seeing
1: old friends. And for you with races like Chicago, I mean, that's where you arguably had your greatest success as a marathoner. When that race comes around, do you pay attention to it even if you don't have anyone racing just to see what the guys are doing? Uh, not really, no. I mean, if, if there's a couple of good Americans in there, maybe I'll, I'll
0: you know brush up on who they are and how they're expected to run. But for the most part, they're all social events for me now.
1: And for you going back, Chicago is where you completed your first marathon in world record time, 1984. You're in 2008, What do you remember about that race?
0: Um, It was a a race of redemption, I suppose. I'd run the year before, 1983, and had to drop out 20, uh, sorry, 16 miles. And I promised Bob Wright that I'd come back the following year if if he was gonna have me, and uh, I would do a little better. And so it it was about going there and proving to myself, as well as to everybody else, that yeah, um, I was a journeyman distance runner, and I could take the marathon
1: under my wing, I suppose. What happened the year before, in 1983, that forced you to drop out? Um,
0: I had been training in Park City for three weeks prior to the race, and training had gone well. I got into Chicago on a Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday night—I I can't quite remember—ran um, a few times. At, uh, uh, up and down the lake, uh, lake shore drive there. And on Saturday, I was meant to do a 20-minute run, uh, just a shakeout kind of run. Uh, and I went out and had a nice 20-minute run. And I was crossing the street to go back into the hotel, the uh, the Conrad Hilton, he was called then. And uh, Hugh Jones was coming out and we'd been training in Park City together. So... I asked him how far he was going to run. He said, oh, maybe 20 minutes. So I thought I might want well run another 20 minutes with him. With and I got into 15 minutes or so and my foot started hurting for some reason. Um, and then, you know, that was the end of the story. I, 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 it was sore all night. It was sore the next morning when I got up, tied my shoes on as tight as I could to uh, alleviate the pain a little bit. Um, but as the race uh, got further and further into the race it
1: started hurt more and more and i just couldn't run it by 16 miles i had to drop out what were you feeling when you had to step off the course at 16 miles with that being your first marathon
0: uh, very disappointed because it was the easiest 16 miles i'd ever run you know um the, the i was up there with the main guys it was still a bit of a pack there actually um uh, hugh jones and uh, joe enzo uh, Greg Meyer and a few other people were still there, um, and I just, but I just couldn't carry on. You know, it, there was no way I could uh, finish the race. That alone, you know, slowly, you know. So, uh, and I think Hugh and um, Enzo, Joe Enzo, had a, a sprint finish, I believe,
1: to the finish line, and so run about two ten, I believe. What were your initial impressions of the marathon? You just said it was the easiest, sixteen miles that you'd ever run up to that point did the distance intimidate you at all before you know your your first go at it and when you did step off did you know that it was only a matter of time before you really nailed one
0: um no i I mean a distance never bothered me um from the first one to the last one you know it's uh yeah it's just about running at the end of the day i i felt that um uh i had no fear of the distance my 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 inspiration or my motivation in any race is the competition you know the people you're running against and i knew most of the people uh and i i felt that i had i had a good chance of beating most of them in the race hugh jones was a tried and tested marathon runner so was joe in it i suppose but uh apart from that greg my uh, apart from that then there was nobody i would be afraid of so so the distance never intimidated me
1: And in the year between when you dropped 1983 and then 1984, did you know that you were going to go back? And was that your sole focus that entire year in between 83 and 84 Chicago Marathons? No, my focus was my next race.
0: Uh, uh, Even uh, at the end of my career, I never really focused on any one event. Uh, Obviously, you want to make major games and major championships, but it's... To me, that wasn't the inspiration. That wasn't what kept me running. What kept me running was the next race and the competition. I I took every race in my stride and uh, just tried to carry on the, the the following 12 months after that, as I as I did the previous
1: um, 15 years. Do you think that's what ends up paralyzing a lot of athletes? today, whether it's elites or even age groupers, they put so much focus into one race, usually a marathon because it requires this big buildup and they put it on a bit of a pedestal. And then if it doesn't go well, you know, everything else, you know, was a, was a waste of time. Uh, Yeah, I I
0: think that is one of the problems today. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard to explain really because I, obviously, I was a different animal to most of the people out there. I, you know, I like to race frequently. I like to to take one step at a time, one race at a time. You know, get that one out of the way and look forward to the next one. When you focus on one specific event for any period of time, it could be five months, it could be a year, it could be two years, it could be four years. You know, between Olympics or something, then you tend to miss out a lot of what the sport is all about and running is all about. Uh, and by doing that, also you you you're not learning your trade. You're not racing enough. You're not you're not doing things instinctively. Uh, you, you're doing it because you're trying to follow a certain path, as opposed to
1: embracing the sport, embracing races. And are those lessons now that, as a coach, you consciously try to impart onto your own athletes? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it works.
0: Sometimes it doesn't. I think I I would say the last year. 15, 16 months that the, the guys in my group, everybody in my group has realized that the races are important. Every race is important. It's not just trying to focus on, on one specific race, whether it's a marathon or whether it's a 10K, whether it's cross country, you know, embrace the sport. Embr- the more you often you race, the more you're going to learn about yourself, about the sport, about how, how to do things instinctively. And Instinctiveness is something that is lost to most of this generation, I think.
1: You just mentioned how throughout your career you raced a lot, and that was not atypical of many of the athletes of your time. Bill Rogers raced a lot. Many of the guys that you talked about earlier were racing very frequently. Now we don't see many of the sports top stars more than, you know, in some cases like Elliot Kapchoge twice a year, and some of them maybe three or four times. Do you think that? also hurts the sport aside from what you had just described about it, you know, for many athletes who don't race a lot, they don't get to practice the skill of racing. They don't get to learn how to respond in that type of environment. Mm. Uh, (laughs) It hurts them. Yes. I I think it
0: hurts them. I, I mean, I come from a different generation to the generation that's running now. And probably two generations ago. Uh, same with Billy. Same with Frank. Same with um, you know Greg Mar, and a lot of the people of my my era. You know, we we like to compete, um, and obviously we were trying to make a living out of it as well. Uh, so, while well, the money was never a motivating factor, it was it was certainly a factor. Uh, but. You know, today, there's not so much money in the sport anymore. It costs a lot of money for people to, to, to fly halfway around the country for a 10K or a half marathon or even a marathon now. Uh, hotels, flights and all that sort of stuff that races used to pick up, but they don't seem to pick them up as much as they used to anymore. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of the learning of the craft of racing and, and, and the sport has disappeared, I suppose. And, uh, over the last ten or fifteen years, yeah, some of these guys are great, but the great ones are always going to be great, whether they race once a year or, or fifteen times a year. But the people, the second tier ones, I suppose, are the people that get hurt because it's almost like they're afraid to go out there and and, and compete against each other and um, not get the result they're looking for.
1: You raise an interesting point too, as you just said I mean you raced because that was also how you made your living it wasn't the primary factor but you know as a reality of how you're able to continue doing this and and now I mean sure athletes are getting appearance fees and they can win some prize money but it also you know from the sponsorship side of it it's, it's almost like the performance not that it doesn't matter but they're asked to do so many other things it's about having a presence on social media it's about making appearances and all these things that are not necessarily related to performance that is carrying more weight than the actual results themselves and i don't know that that necessarily helps the competitive side of the sport
0: you're almost answering your own questions there <laughs> you know? um uh and there's not much more i can add to it you know i'm not a social media sort of person yeah I, i'm on facebook i have uh but that's about it you know um i check it out a couple of couple of times a week um but yeah uh part of the criteria i think now of getting any kind of sponsorship or or or, um merchandising deal with with companies is that you have that social presence and sometimes the social presence puts a a, a different kind of pressure on each on on these guys because yeah they have to say the certain things say the right things but then they have to go and live up to them you know and i think that's pretty tough on them
1: are you in a way, almost glad that you aren't racing today or trying to make it as a professional athlete today, given all of those things?
0: Um, uh, that's a, that's a tough one, really, because the kind of running and racing I was doing 20 years ago, I think would, would survive today. You know, I would still be up there today. I'd still be making money today. Um, but it is a different sport. Um, Part, partly because there's a social side of it, the social media side of it, is, uh, is something that I wouldn't be able to embrace. Uh, I think I could still be competitive at my best with most of, most of the people that are around today. Um, I miss that competition, I miss the thrillers on a start line and going head to head with somebody, but I don't miss, you know, 100 miles a week and, uh, and traveling
1: halfway around the world. Let's go back to the Chicago Marathon 1984 specifically. You won that race in 2:08:05, As you had just mentioned earlier, that was your redemption race. You came back from having a dropout in 1983. What do you remember about Chicago in 1984? Did you go in with any objective other than to try and win the race? Did you have a time in mind? I'd love to dig into your mindset yeah. a little bit more heading into it.
0: I think um, if you look at most of my results, uh, my good ones anyway, uh, and see the kind of people, the class of the people that were in the race, in the races, then you could understand why I always had this mentality of beating the competition. Uh, and I had i had that ever since I first put on a pair of running shoes back in nineteen seventy. You know, I would never win a try and win a race in one second if I could win it in two minutes. You know. Uh, and then we come back to 1984 with Rob Di Castella, world champion, world record holder, um, uh, Carlos Lopez, uh, Olympic marathon champion, uh, world cross country champion. It's uh, a, and a host of other people. Jeff Smith, two t- two times uh, Boston marathon winner. Uh, I think Greg was in that race as well. There's a, a whole host of other people, world world leaders in the marathon. It's about going out and being in the competition. And if you beat the competition nine times out of ten, you're going to get good times. You know, instead of looking at my watch every 5K or looking at splits written on my hand, you know, it was about
1: going out head to head with these guys and, and trying to beat them. Did you know in that race that you were running close to world record pace? Not at all, no.
0: Um, I, my strategy was to just sit with with Rob uh, and Carlos and, and uh, Jeff Gabriel Kamau, Joe Inzo. There's a whole bunch of us at 18 miles. Um, but my strategy was to run with them for t- uh, for 20 miles and then and then kick. And you know, I kicked a little before uh, 20 miles, only because Gabriel Kamau took it out at 19, and I I chased him down and passed him. And nobody came with us. You know, I just carried on. I just wanted to beat those guys. What did that win do for your career? Oh. Well, uh, it changed my life. I mean, I live, I've been living in Boulder, Colorado for 30 years. Uh, there's no way, if I hadn't won that race and broke the world record, that I'd be sat here today talk, talking to you because uh, I would still have been that journeyman runner that runs well you know, top 10 Olympics, top, top five or seven in European championships, uh, world cross country medalist. I've I I just been
1: another good runner. What's interesting, though, is, I mean, I know this about you. You worked as an aircraft technician for the Royal Air Force for most of your career, if not all of it. And I believe you continued to do that after 1984. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, You know, why did you you continue to, you know, hold down a a strenuous day job when at that point you could have made it solely as a professional runner?
0: Um, Well... I remember after, the, after Chicago, the press conference after the race um, it, it was in a tent at the finish line and somebody asked me, uh, um, was I going to leave the Air Force and just be, become a professional runner? And I thought, to my, I thought to myself and told them as well that I, I got this far in partnership with the Royal Air Force, with my family, with my friends, uh, with the system I had working at home, broken world record. Uh, why would I want to change that? Um, so that's why I stayed. And of course, the other, uh, uh, another answer to that question, which somebody asked me almost immediately afterwards, the same question, was uh, why, why don't I become a professional runner because of all this money that's in the, in the sport? Uh, I, and I said, um, I'm just one hamstring injury away from oblivion. So why would I want to change anything right now?
1: Do you think you would have been any faster if you had gone to be a full-time athlete? Or is it because of that support system that you had in place, the Royal Air Force, your family, training partners, et cetera, that you were able to have the success that you did?
0: I think that's probably 90% of the reason why, yes. Um, but I, And I kept that strategy, and I, I did get faster. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it worked. I, I didn't leave the Air Force till 1988 uh three months four months before new york of 88 so i had a good 14 years in the the service with the system i had that was working and it's only because i wanted to capitalize on the the end of my career i suppose that uh, i decided to leave
1: the fos we see a lot of young athletes today when they come out of college they want to make a go of it as a professional runner and they go all in on it. They either try to find a training group and can get prof- sponsored professionally for it, or you know, find a small part-time job that they can make ends meet with. When you come across these athletes, I know you work with some of them. What are those conversations like when you're helping them navigate that part of their own professional career?
0: Um, it's I, I don't usually get people at, at uh, all. all my people, at, all the people in my group, post collegiate. Uh, but the, by the time they come to, to my group, they, for the most part, they're all settled, they have their jobs, they have their family, they have the other stuff of their life sorted out before they come to, to, to my group. And for the most part, they come because they still have a goal, um, they still have uh, some ambitions of, of improving and moving on to the next level. Uh, so I don't have to address a lot of those things during the period after they join the group, then, yeah, we talk about those sort of things the things that they can do to help their running career, uh, organizing their running around their lives or their lives around their running. Uh, We we have those conversations. Uh, Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not. Sometimes people don't get it and decide
1: that somewhere else is better for them. Not very often, but it has has happened. Do you feel that athletes in general... Should have professional athletes should have a job outside of running or something else to occupy some of their headspace when they're not training and racing.
0: Um, that's a difficult one to uh, to answer. Do I feel they should? Um, I don't think I as, as a coach I, I and their friend that I, I should be telling them that kind of stuff um, to reach the very top you do need to have that freedom of doing the things that you, you need to do to, to get to the next level. I remember being in a press conference with Rob de Gustala back in 85, actually, um, after, just before 85 Chicago Marathon. And somebody asked Rob, how many, day, how many hours a day does he train? And he looked at him, he says, 24 hours a day, because it, it's all about organizing your life to get the best out of yourself. You know, whether it's a training, whether it's your family, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the other stuff you do to, to help you with your running, whether it's in your naps in the afternoon, whether it's sleeping at night, getting the right uh, amount of sleep. So he just said 24 hours a day. I train 24 hours a day. And if you're doing that, then you can't have, it. you don't have time for a job. Uh, so it's... The guys at the very top, they don't have jobs. And I mean the very top now. Um, uh, the guys running 215 to 210, they're, they're all working stiffs because you're not gonna earn enough money to, to not ha- have a job, to, to support yourself. Uh, regardless of sponsorship, there's not much money out there anymore like there used to be. Uh, for the most part, people are just getting uh you know 212 guys just got in shoes and t-shirts and 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 running equipment
1: do you think the overall health of the sport is better today than it was when you were competing
0: um that's, that's tough as well I, the difference between today and my day I suppose um, is that all the sports companies, running shoe companies, whether Reebok, Nike, Asics, Tiger, um, uh, Brooks, all the guys in the right places were all runners. So they had a, an interest in the sport. They, 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 the sport was very close to their hearts. So they, they, they probably went over and above what they needed to, to do to support the runners, support their friends, support running clubs. Today, that's not out there. Um and I think it's much tougher today for, for these guys to, to make a living at the sport, uh, as we did. I'm not saying they gave us gave money away back in the days, but there there was there was contracts out there for 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 good um, uh, local runners, good club runners, whereas there isn't anymore.
1: Let's speak about the club scene a little bit. You have a group in Boulder, Boulder Harriers, that you coach how important are those types of groups for the development of athletes in this country specifically
0: um i think they're very important because once once most athletes leave uh post collegiate and there's really not a great deal out there for them and unless they're really uh um dedicated, uh, focused on, on improving and getting to the next level or, or trying to get to the next race, uh, for the most part, the sport gets thinned out and people drop out of the sport and just become fun runners, I suppose. Uh, I think clubs like the Harriers uh, are a great stepping stone, I think, um, in keeping people in the sport. Uh, being on a team with like-minded people and I don't mean people that just want to run just to keep generally fit. And, you know, uh, I mean people who have ambitions and, and really do want to get to the next level. I think it, it's, uh, essential that my kind of team or my kind of club is out there. When did you start your team? Hmm. Well, I've had several teams in, in Boulder, uh, BX, um, which was Boulder Express, Tempo Sport, uh, and now, of course, um, Boulder Harriers. Uh, I've been coaching in Boulder. I'd say twelve years, thirteen years. Uh, the Boulder Harriers is probably about nine, eight or
1: nine years old now. Did you know that you would eventually get into coaching and have a training group, or how did that all come about originally?
0: <laughs> coaching was the last thing I ever wanted to do. Uh, I had no desire at all. To, to coach um, post uh, Steve Jones' career. Um, I always had a little bit of advice if anybody asked ask me for it, but for the most part I kept my nose out of it and, and kept to myself. And then uh, a guy called Pete Julian, who was living here in Boulder, and I was working in Boulder Running Company at the time, uh, at, at, and his wife was working there as well. And Pete had asked me if I'd help him out. And I said, no. Uh, and then his wife said, well, you know, you should, you should try and help him out You know, just to give something back to the sport. And I still wasn't co- too interested in it. And then that year I saw him and sh- he ran Chicago, it didn't run very well. And then the next year he didn't run very well either. And he just said, Jonesy, I need some help. Would you, would you help me? And I, I was caught at a weak moment, probably on my <laughs> sixth or seventh beer. And I said, okay, And it just started from there, you know, helping Pete. And then uh, his brother-in-law would just show up on on the mornings Pete and I met to do a workout. He'd jump out of the bushes, Uh, Sean Nesbitt, he'd jump out of the bushes and it was okay if I joined in. So he joined in and then a couple of weeks later, he he asked if he could, you know, just come regular. Uh, And then within six weeks, I had, uh, I had about seven or eight people show up for workouts, you know, so that's how it all started. And you know, I have my own philosophy. Uh, Anybody, you can ask anybody, I'm pretty unbending in my philosophy. Uh, And I I, uh, people have, have left the group because I'm unbending and people Afraid to come to the group because I'm unbending. My philosophy, I I feel works. Is it going to get you an Olympic gold medal? Probably not, because it's more to to the final picture than than my coaching or my
1: running. Uh, but it certainly gets them up the ladder a bit. Well, let's dig into your philosophy a little bit. How would you describe it in general terms? Mm, simple. It's, it's it's running simplified.
0: What do you mean um, by that exactly? There's no extras, there's no cross training, there's no core training, there's no jumping in the creek or jumping in ice buckets or stretching or, you know, uh, it's just self maintenance. And uh, you just run, if you have a bit of an injury, you go and see somebody. Yeah, I would recommend a, a massage every week to 10 days for anybody, whether they hurt or not, just to, just for maintenance. But it's
1: just simple running to get up in the morning, put your running shoes on and go for your run. <coughs> We're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's Tracksmith. Parts of this interview are featured in the fall issue of Meter Magazine, that's Tracksmith's quarterly journal of all things running and running culture. Meter is available at tracksmith.com, and the latest issue will be free at their New York pop-up, which takes place at Rowing Blazers in Soho during Marathon Weekend. That's Friday, November 1st until Monday the 4th. They'll have their limited edition NYC collection available alongside a full itinerary of events, including a Friday shakeout and panel discussion with yours truly and a lot more. Hopefully I'll see you there. You can find all the details at tracksmith.com. My thanks to tracksmith for supporting the morning shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Do you think a lot of athletes and coaches today are overcomplicating their approach to training? Yes.
0: Uh, I think sport has done that anyway. There's a huge industry out there pressurizing athletes to do this and do that, drink this, uh, eat that, or stretch this, or you know, um, there's a huge industry out there, and it's it's killed the sport in my mind. The the, the simplicity of the sport, the, the instinctiveness of the sport. There's two great articles um, in this month's uh, New England tie, uh, New England Runner, and one is by Pete Ray, who is the coach at um, Zap Fitness. Uh, Zap Fitness, and he debunks stretching. It's a a great article, and i said it for years and years about the benefits or the non-benefits of stretching. Uh, I'm not going to go into it. I think people should go and try and buy the magazine or look it up on the internet and and just read it. Uh, And the other article is by Tom DeDorian, who wrote uh, the Boston 100-Year Marathon book, uh, talking about a lady that went out was um, dedicated to proving a lot of the principles that are out there today about ice and ice baths and uh, uh, nutrition on, on the run and all that sort of stuff. And they've just confirmed what I've been trying to say for ever since I started running. it that it's you, know, you don't necessarily need it. And I know I could get killed for saying it, but you know it's it's complicated in my sport. And, and people are making a lot of
1: money off it. Well, I can't disagree with you because on a very fundamental level, running is the most, I mean, it's the simplest sport there is. You put one foot in front of the other and you move forward. And as far as racing goes, first to the finish line wins. And I think you're spot on with a lot of your observations. I'd love to dig into what you said earlier about you know your unbending philosophy and when athletes come into your group. I mean, you've had some who've stuck with you you know, for a long time and you've had others who have dropped out um, because you didn't see eye to eye. But those who have stuck with you, what is it about that philosophy that has helped them jump to the next level or in some cases re-energize their career? I, th- I
0: think one of the basic things is that um, they're actually training. They're actually running. Um, and they've realized... You take Tyler, Tyler, for instance. Tyler's been with me oh, six years, six and a half years. Um, it's taken that long for for him to really understand what I'm trying to teach or what I'm trying to preach, and not just in the training, but also in the racing as well. It's uh, it's something that it's a long process. It's not overnight. Uh, somebody once asked me to write a uh, a marathon program for for him to call quali- it not Tyler but this person, uh, to, so he could get a qualifying time for the Olympic trials. And he wanted like a, a, a four-month program. Uh, I said, I could write a 15-year program because that's how long it took me to, to get to the Olympics or to, to get to my trials. You know, it's none of this is overnight. It's all about focusing, dedication, um, discipline and routine, doing the same thing. Not just the run in, but the same workouts, the same you know, the same regimen, and it takes a long time because we're in a we're in a, in a I want it right now uh, society. I remember Coach Wetmore from CU saying one time at, at a at a at a, a uh, an conference I think here in Boulder, and uh, he says um, the trouble with athletes today is that. They belong to uh, the McDonald's syndrome, and if somebody asked him what did he mean, he said, "Well, they pull up to McDonald's drive-through. They want a burger, they want a milkshake, they want fries, and an Olympic gold medal." <laughs> and I think that's that,
1: that's some of one of one of the reasons that uh, it's so difficult for people today. <laughs> No, I would agree. I mean, I think it is a, a societal and a cultural thing that has trickled down yeah. into our approach to, to running to our detriment. They, they don't appreciate
0: that that people just don't get to the top. It's hard work. And for, for every 50 people that's trying, three people might get to the
1: top. And for the athletes who haven't worked out for you, is it because they can't buy into that long-term approach, and they haven't seen the results that they want to see almost instantaneously. Um, to be fair
0: to them, um, not necessarily no. Uh, you know the, life gets in the way, and, and I've learned that more and more over the last couple of years that life gets in the way. Life happens outside of out of running. Um, I was I was fortunate enough to be married to the right person, have the right coaches, be in the right um, work environment, where even though the running and training was hard, it was easy to for me to focus and, and manage my time. It's not so easy today because there's so much out there for everybody. and you know, whether, and especially living here in Boulder, you know, and looking at the flat lines out through the window here now. And uh, it's uh, it's tempting, you know, do I do a Sunday run or do I go and, and, and walk up Mount Evans? Or should I go to Longs Peak and, and do a hike up there? You know, it's so tempting to to, to, to want to be human and, and take in everything that's around you as opposed to just focusing and dedicating yourself to the running. Do you have to
1: help your athletes manage those temptations? Uh, sometimes, yeah.
0: I, you know, um, a, a size ten Reebok helps in the, back, in the backside. You know, so yeah, I, I, I try to help. Um, you know, I, I have become more flexible because I've appreciated more
1: that there is more out there for these for, for the young young people in my group now. Let's dig into that a little bit you mentioned earlier how your philosophy is unbending you just said how it's become a little bit more flexible is that the biggest way that your philosophy has evolved as a coach since you took on pete julian however many years back
0: yeah i would say so um some of the things that happen now if they or some of the things my group goes through and and the temptations that are out there now for my for my group even as even three or four years ago, I would be so disappointed. I I would feel like let down and and take it personally. Somebody didn't come for a Sunday run or or wanted to go to church instead of come come for the Sunday run. I think that happened once and my comment was Sunday run is church. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I've been strict on, my, on the group, I suppose, uh, on my, with my philosophy. And I think it may have hurt me at times, I may have lost people at times because of it. But the more I appreciate it now, uh, then I, there's some things I probably wouldn't have done in, in the past, in terms of leaving other groups
1: or quitting or walking away from the sport for a short period. How has your relationship with the athletes themselves evolved over the years? Do you look at them as strictly athletes that you're helping to achieve their running goals? Or is it deeper than that? Are they almost like kids to you in, in a way, and you're helping guide yeah. them through the process of life, not it's just mu- running? It's much deeper than that.
0: I mean, they're, they're my family. you know, and I bend over backwards sometimes to, to help and to, to point people in the right direction not necessarily in my direction or what i think is right but what's right for them uh but that would take the stress and pressure off them Uh, yeah i'm i'm i would say that they're my family now
1: i'd love to dig into the x's and o's of training a little bit where did you get your training ideas from were you coached throughout most of your career or did you sort of take things from different people that you had talked to or influenced you? I'd love to learn how you sort of came up with your philosophy of training.
0: Um, uh, the very first time I ran was a race. So uh, when I first started running, I was pretty green. You know, I lived on top of a hill next to the mountains in, in South Wales. So we were always running around and playing and, playing games up, you know, up on the mountain. Um, so I was pretty fit and healthy anyway, I think, and very smoked and I drank beer and I was only 15, but um, I did this race and I finished fifth in it and I couldn't believe it. Uh, and, and I was press gang into doing the race. And then a, a couple of weeks later I did another one. I finished sixth and qualified for something. Um, uh, I, I ran six times a year for the next three years. And they were all cross-country races, uh, four cross-country races and one track race. And then I joined the Royal Air Force and thought I'd like to run for the Royal Air Force. And somebody said I couldn't. So I put my head down and I thought, what, I'm gonna do this. I got to my permanent station. This was 1974. And after my basic training and my trade training, and uh, the, the station team, had a cross-country. This station had a cross-country team and I, I, I ended for that. And I was in the B team, I think. Ran a couple of weeks there, got into the A team. Uh, I was probably running four days, five days a week because I, at weekends I went home t- to see my girlfriend. Well, a guy called Bob Wallace was posted in from RAF Germany who had done a bit, of, quite a bit of running out there. And he took over our cross-country team. And he, uh, he had his own training and the team just ran with him, you know, whatever Bob was doing and we would do. But I learned a lot, you know, uh, uh, just by hanging around Bob, um, running with him at times, and sometimes on weekends, I joined the same running club that he he ran for. In 1976, uh, he, I just got married, just got on my first uh, married quarter, my parents were visiting. And I got a knock on the door and Bob Wallace was at the door and he said uh, Steve, he said, um, I think you've got some talent. Uh, I think uh, that I'd like to help you out. Do you mind if I coach you? And I said, not at all. So he coached me and he, I was his first athlete that he coached. He, he, he had coached and, and we both learned together, you know, um, and I just did everything Bob said. Every workout, um, every mile he told me to run, I, I ran. The races he wanted me to run, I ran. I just absorbed it all. So my philosophy really comes from Bob's Bob's input. He coached me from 76 to 84. Uh, coached me from a, a, a B-team runner to the Olympic 10,000-meter final. Did he so, coach you
1: through your first marathon? No.
0: He, he retired just before the Olympics
1: in 1984 and after that were you mostly self coached or after that, after that I coached
0: myself for two years um, through 86 and then my club coach uh, uh, Mike Rowland I, I approached him and asked him if he would help me out it was too stressful trying to organize my run running my, my uh, races and all the other stuff that was going on You know, post Uh, world record, uh, race in Chicago. So he gladly helped me out effectively because I never really retired. He's still coaching me now. (laughs) He doesn't send me a program,
1: (laughs) but it's, 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 as you just described earlier with your own athletes, it's more than just the program. It's that relationship. It's that friendship. It's the guidance that they can provide throughout your life. Uh,
0: uh, Years later, what uh, I say years later, Bob started coaching me in '76. I'd say in 1972 or three, '82 or three. He paid me a compliment, which was the best compliment he ever he ever gave me. And he he told somebody that I had a insatiable appetite for hard work. So you know, that's what I I uh, put down all of my success, success to is I just had this appetite for hard work. Um, And I I did everything Bob asked me to do for eight years.
1: Well, and combine that with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong with this as well, but what you described earlier about how when you first got into running at 15 years old, all you did was race. You raced six times a year and that was the only running that you did, but you wanted to prove something. So combine that, you know, insatiable appetite for hard work, which came later with what seemed like a chip on your shoulder at the time to sort of prove people wrong. I mean, to me, just in, in my experience, that's a dangerous combination.
0: Yeah. And I was in a position where I I could use that uh, philosophy, I suppose, or that ambition because I was starting at the bottom, you know, and I used to run for Swindon AC uh, back in 75, 76 until 1980. And I remember running league races, cross-country races on on Saturday afternoons in the pouring rain. And I'm way down in the middle of the field. but I had my targets even there because you're running against the same people week in or week out. And I had these t- targets, of, I want to beat that guy there. And one guy, Dave Sherman, he, uh, God rest his soul. Uh, he was somebody I picked out that for weeks, i beat him by two seconds. He'd beat me beat by three seconds. and Then i beat him by more than that one week. And then of course it's the next person then. I'd Hit, the next person becomes the victim or the target for, for your next race. Um, and th- that's how my whole career, my whole running career went. It was always trying to beat the guy in front of me, always trying to catch the guy in front of me. And that helped me not just, with, not just to train it. It wasn't just to train you, but it was that attitude going into races. And like I said, you know, when I started winning races, I, I didn't want to win them by one second. I wanted to win them by 90 seconds or two minutes. It was always about beating the beating the opposition. Annihilation,
1: I, I used to call it. Well, let's let's run with that theme here for a second and bring it back to Chicago Marathon nineteen eighty-five. Still your personal best. Ran 207-13. You just missed the world record in that race. But what I remember in my reading of it is you were now at the time, what seemed like an absolutely unheard of insane pace. I think you're 61, 42, or 43. Through halfway, and I remember reading in I think it was Michael Sanrock's book, uh, "Running with the Legends." You were running early on with I believe he's a Kenyan named named Simon or Simeon Keegan, and yeah. he was stepping on your shoe early on. And you asked him, or maybe told him to to take the lead, and he said, "No, I'm okay." And from there, you just took off, and you were throwing down mile splits like in the 440s, and and went off to a halfway split. And you know, you were ahead of pace at halfway, running you know at that time sub. I mean that would have been sub two hundred four marathon pace, which mm-hmm. was unheard of. And eventually, you slowed down a little bit. But take me through that race in nineteen eighty five. It was a year after you had broke the world. Well, you set the world record a year prior in Chicago, nineteen eighty four. What was what was that experience like for you going that fast early on? Again, were you aware of how fast you were running? Did you even have a watch or an eye on the clock, or are you just trying to, as you said, obliterate everyone else in the field? Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> All the above. Um, no, uh, I didn't even know what the world record was, so it wasn't like I, honest. I sorry, we're talking about eighty-five now. Yeah, um, uh, the senior moment there. Um, <laughs> I, I got to Chicago, and I, once again I went to Park City, and I trained up there longer this time. I think it was five weeks. So I went there for. I uh, did several races. Did pretty. Well, very well in them. Uh, And uh, I felt I was ready for a a great race in Chicago. People were were billing it as another world record attempt, but I never once said that. I said I was in better shape than last year, but I never once said I was going for a world record. Uh, And it's not something Steve Jones would say anyway. Um, Rob Costello was there again. And I just felt that Rob was getting... Steve Jones might have been a flash in a pan. So Rob is still the, the established marathon runner mm-hmm. for, former world record himself. So the, a lot of the press, I suppose, was about Rob and how he was going to run. And that sort of thing gets, you know, puts that little chip on my shoulder, I suppose. And I just said to myself, I knew how I was going to run. I was going to run hard from the gun uh, because I wanted to beat Rob 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 is a really great friend of mine and uh, even though i didn't know him very well before 85 84 and 85 uh we had raced against each other a few times but uh i was a bit miffed that he was getting all you know jealous i suppose that he was getting all the press and all the recognition for what he'd done and i was i was the previous year's winner i broke the a record i didn't have it um for very long but i still had it so the gun goes, and we had a pacemaker uh, a guy called Carl Thackeray, who was a brilliant 61-minute um, half marathon runner himself in his time, showed flashes of brilliance in his career. He was supposed to take us through halfway, I think, pretty quick. But he caught a cold the day before, and we went through the first mile in 4:50, I think, 4:45. And he asked me if this was okay. I said no i'll take it up now so I, I really took it up from from mile two even though simeon hang on until almost 10k uh, and when i asked him if he would help he, he said no i'm fine here i stay here and uh, i said okay and i just pressed on and i, I, I it was just about beating rob uh, i never once thought that he would come back at me or I would slow and go back to back to him
1: i, I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing were you aware of how fast you were running, say at halfway?
0: Um, I not, sh- I, we got. I got through 10 miles, I think in 47, something, I believe. Um, but I, no, I wasn't, uh, it didn't, didn't register to me at all. You know, I don't, didn't have splits tied, you know, written on my hands or anything, you know, but I, did, I had nothing in mind. My, my th- only thoughts were beating Rob. and, uh, I got to about 18 miles, I think, uh, and my agent friend was uh, was at 80 miles, and he just shouted, Are "You okay?" I just winked at him and carried on, you know. So uh, yeah, I slowed the last 10k, but you know, for 20 miles or 22 miles, I, I was on 204 pace, you know, so I was just a uh, a, a wafer thin edge away from being where the guys are
1: today and this was 30 years ago 34 years ago were you worried at all in that last 10k that rob or someone else was going to catch you or did you feel pretty confident that you were still moving well enough that you could still win the race
0: oh i was i felt i was still moving well enough i, I knew i was slowing and i had no idea how far they were behind anyway i just kept pushing and pushing you know even though you're, you're slowing and you're still trying to push uh there was no i didn't feel bad enough the way i ever felt i needed to stop or would have stopped um and i didn't i didn't know how fast it was until i got to the finish straight and i could see the clock ticking away 206 something so um just like the previous year when i got to to the finishing straight and the clock was 207 something you know it, it didn't mean anything to me It just I was trying to beat the clock then at last 150, 200 yards.
1: Are you surprised that it took 33 years for Mo Farah to break that time as the British marathon record?
0: Yeah. Uh, I come from an era where there was a lot of really, really good runners in the UK. Um, yeah. And I could, I could tell you names that wouldn't mean anything to you or anything to most of the people who listen to this podcast, but Uh, They were all my mentors and they were all people like Jeff Smith and Hugh Jones, uh, uh, Richard Nureka, you know, they they were knocking on the door, you know, 208 something, but but nobody seemed to quite get that uh, magical 207.13, even though times had changed in terms of the science of the sport. all types of sciences uh, physical and psychological Um, people seem to know how to train for a marathon but they didn't know how to race it and that's one of the problems today I believe as well
1: Are you surprised at all by the times that the fastest athletes are running today? Um, That's a loaded question um uh, (laughs) I
0: have to say that what's the world record now? Two hundred one something.
1: Two hundred one thirty
0: nine. Yeah, that 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 is a surprise to me. I I almost I almost run two hundred four something. So I figured that that maybe two hundred three, two hundred two something would would um, probably be a ceiling. Uh, and if I could do that, then there's no reason why other people, you know, I mean, a 204, 205. If I could do 204, 205, there's no reason why other people couldn't run faster than that. Uh, I, there's, there's this myth about the two-hour two mark. Uh, I'm wondering whether I'd like to see it go or not, because it is a, a myth um, that drives a lot of people, I think. And it's inspired a lot of interest in the sport. But um, it's
1: yeah it's 201 202 is, is a bit of a surprise for me. What do you mean by you think it's a myth the two-hour marathon mark? Uh, it's, it's, it's
0: like it's like the four minute mile wasn't it you know uh, it's just
1: an arbitrary barrier yeah yeah okay. What are your thoughts on the sub two-hour exhibitions we saw Kipchoge do it a couple years ago in Italy He's going to try again this fall do you think events like that or exhibitions like that are good for the sport I think the sport has always had those hasn't they
0: um whether it's uh, the powder hole sprints in Scotland back in the you know 20s and 30s um if you go back to Alfred Shrub and George Young and all those guys back in the late 1800s uh into the 1910s and 1920s, they were always ex- exhibition events, you know, 10 miles indoors or 10-mile roadways or London to Chippenham or Chippenham to uh, London to Brighton or something. Always been those exhibition events to, to inspire, I suppose, other people in the sport and um, to put on spectaculars. Uh, it'd be great if they could do that uh, in a stadium. With sixty thousand people sitting in the stadium watching, you know, twenty-five people running around in, inside a stadium trying to break the world marathon record. You know, that, that that's where it should be. There shouldn't be on you know race race courses and stuff like that. It should be if they gonna make a spectacle out of them
1: then make them spectac- uh, spectacular. Do you think it's problematic that it's focused on just one person? It's not so much a race as it is a time trial. Um, it is a time trial,
0: Chicago marathon, London marathon, New York marathon, Berlin marathon. They're just time trials. There's no no foot
1: races out there anymore.
0: So why not another one?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's talk about New York since you just mentioned it. You won that race in 1988. You're in 208, 20 there, which is a time that would still be competitive there today. What was it like for you to win in New York? (laughs)
0: Um, it was uh, very, it, it was sweet. I, I don't know what the next word should be, but it was sweet. I, I had been training here in Boulder, Colorado, the first time I came in 1988. I, I won Philadelphia half marathon and then came straight here from Philadelphia. Uh, and i have been training six weeks. Training had gone great and I, uh, I kind of was being written off, you know, um, I hadn't won a marathon since 85, I I blew up in 86 in the European Championships. Uh, so I'd kind of been written off, I had a few good results, but nothing spectacular. So I trained here hard for six weeks and went to New York and I was ready. I knew I was ready. Um, I. I was kind of like the I was the dark horse of the race. Although anybody that knew me knew that I was going to be, I w- if I was in New York, then I was going to go run well. And the race went exactly how I, I wanted it to go, how I planned. And uh, the tactics were perfect. I was I was going to sit till halfway, and then push on from halfway. Fortunately, just like in. 84 in Chicago, there was somebody with the same idea. So when they pushed, it was, uh, I think it was um, in Chicago 84, it was Gabriel Kamau. In New York, it was uh, Gidemus Shahanga. Pushed on, and I just followed and just carried on, pushing, pushing, pushing. It was very sweet. You know, things hadn't gone well. Uh, the training hadn't gone well. i just left the Air Force uh, four months before, so I could focus on on the back end of a professional career. And it it all paid off. You know, it doesn't happen very often. I was fortunate enough to win five marathons in my running career. And all five of them played out the way I, I had planned them.
1: What did that win do for you at that point of your career, as you just described? It was at the tail end of it.
0: It, um, it, it's uh, reinvigorized it you know it's just put me back on on top of the pile again i think uh, i had been left out of the team for the olympics in seoul i think it was in 88 Uh, i had got a call a month before the olympics saying somebody dropped out and i was in and i said i i don't want to go i was preparing for new york I, i had most of the summer off i was on vacation when i found out uh, my sister read it in the newspaper and told and called me and told me um, I said no, uh, which meant I was focusing then on New York and you know I, I put all, all my eggs in one basket, knew, knew what I had to do. Um, uh, it all worked out.
1: How did the New York and Chicago marathons differ back in the mid to late? 80s, because now they're two of the biggest marathons in the world. There's a lot of hype and circumstance around them. I'd love to get your perspective on how those two events were different.
0: Um, mass participation has obviously uh, crept into the sports since the uh, early 80s. Um, since the 80s, anyway. Um, they're bigger events, are spect- spectacles now. Uh, of our sport although new york has always been that new york is a is an event as opposed to a foot race um chicago has always been a foot race and it still is a foot race except for being a t- time trial foot race uh and i should you know I, I don't like to say bad things about marathons but that's what's happened to my sport my sport um is it's become uh pacemakers and, you know, all the rest of the stuff that goes on. It's, uh, it's changed, they've changed a lot. You know, they still dear to my heart. I still love going to uh, both events and uh, you know seeing all my friends and stuff. But it's the sport has changed a lot. It's, um, it's, it's hard to say, really, it's, it's hard to put it in words, you know, because it's, it's, they're both emotional races for me. Um, I, like I say, I wouldn't be here today talking to you if it wasn't for both of those races, uh, bringing London into it as well. You know, so it's... There used to be a certain amount of competition between each of these events, you know, between Chicago and New York, between Chicago New York and London, uh, before Berlin and Tokyo and uh, and the other races came in uh, to the... To the uh, Major championships, but um, that competition was good. It was good, nice and healthy. Uh, there doesn't seem to be that competition anymore because they're all the the pool is so big. I suppose in terms of uh, world class athletes and world class marathon runners, that uh, they, they have the pick of the pile now. Is before the. Years ago, they'd be scrambling who to get. You know, we want to get Rob Gastella, We want to get Carlos Lopez. We want to get Steve Jones. Um, or, or we want to throw Steve Jones in amongst the pile there just to to see what happens, which is what Bob Bright
1: wanted to do from day one. It's almost as if there are too many events now, and it becomes more difficult to get all of the best runners in the same place at the same time.
0: Yeah, and and the majors control the pool now, you know, they, they, because of, because there are these great runners out there, they got the pick of the choice, and for the most part, it's tough for the up and coming people to get into those races
1: and to get treated the way they should be should be treated. A couple more questions before we wrap up. Where do you see the sport going in the next several years? Oh.
0: Um, I think the the majors will expand maybe max probably eight races uh, i think I think drug testing will become much more efficient and much better uh, and less expensive, <laughs> which is probably one of the reasons why most countries can't do it or don't do it um. I can see that two-hour mark being broken, uh, not in not in a foot race, but in a in a, a spectacular, uh, fixed or not fixed but um, manufactured event, and it will continue to grow in terms of mass participation uh running is simple it's supposed to be um it's easy to put a pair of running shoes on and run in your local 5ks and stuff like that it's going to get harder for post-collegiate athletes to 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 find an identity in in elite and international running
1: do you worry that your sport as you described it throughout this conversation will cease to exist say 10, 20, 30 years from now?
0: The events themselves, I think will exist.
1: Uh, it's,
0: But there'd be less emphasis on, on the sharp end of any race. There'd be less, less emphasis on um, competitiveness and more on participation.
1: Last question: What do you hope that runners, both your own and those listening to this podcast, take away from your career and your philosophy?
0: Oh, from my career, um, it was long.
1: <laughs> it was a long
0: one. Um, I think they just have to look at the results, you know, from day one until the end of my career. I suppose it's, I always tried the hardest I could. I could run. Even that very first race, uh, I I can close my eyes now and I can see it. I can see the shoes I was wearing, the path I was following, the snow around me, and the four guys that I was trying to catch. Um, From there until the end, I I was a competitor, true competitor. And I never gave up.
1: What was the second part? And then the biggest takeaway from... Your philosophy, as it relates to training and your approach to the sport,
0: that we can go back. There is um, there was running and running greatness before science and physiology and and um, drugs. It is. It, it can be natural, natural running, si- running simplified
1: that's my motto well it's one that I certainly appreciate and have applied to not only my career as an athlete but with the athletes that I coach this past hour has been a real treat for me Steve Jones thank you so much for coming on the morning Checkout podcast thanks Mario thanks a lot all right another episode in the books I really hope you enjoyed it if you did or heck Even if you didn't, go to the Apple Podcasts app on your phone or whatever platform you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. It only takes a second. It helps new listeners to discover the show, and it lets me know what's really resonating with you. Also, a big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Parts of the interview that you just heard are featured in the fall issue of Meter Magazine. That's Tracksmith's quarterly journal of all things running and running culture. Meter is available at tracksmith.com and the latest issue will be free at their New York pop-up, which takes place at Rowing Blazers in Soho during Marathon Weekend. That's Friday, November 1st until Monday the 4th. They'll have their limited edition NYC collection available alongside a full itinerary of events, including a Friday evening shakeout and panel discussion with yours truly and a lot more. Hopefully I'll see you there. You can find all the details at tracksmith.com. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, the editing, the music, all of it. That's all John. And he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Also, thank you to Jeff Stern for editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning, or at least I think you will. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast.